Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and over the next half hour, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last week or so. First up, how connected is the world today? Second, can agents always be trusted? And third, are international students being used as political pawns? Those are the three questions we'll be take, tackling today on the Midweek Roundup. For those that are, aren't familiar with the Roundup, welcome, This is if this is your first time, uh, to those that have been subscribing to our podcast or watching us live here on Facebook. We've also expanded the galaxy of uh, where we can you can catch this live event each Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern to our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, our Twitter feed for SMIE Consulting, as well as on LinkedIn for Marty Bennett. So uh, very glad that you're with us today. I've dropped the link to our subscription page for the SMIE Consulting Midweek Round, or the newsletter, All the SMIE News Fit to Share. That's the newsletter that comes out on Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern. Most of the news stories that we cover um, are here on the Roundup on Wednesdays come out of that Monday morning newsletter. So if you'd like to subscribe to that, I'm dropping the link to that in the chat as well as the link to uh, the LinkedIn version of that newsletter. We've added that to the repertoire as well. So I encourage you all to check those out. Uh, and if you're subscribing through our, our, our website, through SMIE Consulting, I will also put the link to the most recent edition uh, so you can get the news stories there as well. So in terms of what's going on today, uh, we have three questions that are, are very much bigger picture questions that are coming out of uh, some news stories that we've seen over the last few days, and we'll cover those here in just a moment. Uh, one of our favorite uh, news, news types of stories are, are data stories. And for those that know me well, you know that uh, our, my company's name is SMIE, SM stands for social media and, and international education. And in terms of where we prioritize our time, uh, we do on the newsletter cover both social media and international education stories. Uh, when we get to the roundup, we don't really have those real blockbuster ones that we cover all too often, but we do every once in a while include a social media related story in how we answer these questions on Wednesdays during the roundup. And how connected our world is, is something that I think uh, we oftentimes uh, ignore. Uh, we, we hear a lot um, listening to a colleague's uh, podcast this past week. Uh, with uh, Rajika Bandari, who has written uh, the, a great new uh, kind of autobiography of her time growing up in India and then her decision to come to the United States for study for her doctoral degree, and it's called America Calling. Uh, and that's a book I cer certainly strongly recommend. She's, she's also started a, a podcast recently called Ed Up World, Worldwise, and in it, uh, she recently uh, interviewed uh, one of my favorites, uh, former Education USA advisors, Rebecca Ziegler-Mano uh, from Zimbabwe. She's American, uh, grew up in the Bay Area, and uh, but has lived in Zimbabwe for uh, 25, 30, 40 years now. I'm not quite sure how long, but she has uh, was this uh, uh, excellent Education USA advisor. She created the USAP program, uh, United States Achievers program, several years ago and uh, has now launched her own school uh, for uh, education matters and uh, prov prov uh, providing this, that's their network that is providing low-income, high-achieving kids 
or low-income, high-achieving kids opportunities uh, through uh, her vast network of university contacts in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, she was talking about the lack of access in certain parts of the world through, to Internet and some of the extent to which um, students had to go during the pandemic to find places that don't, they don't have Wi-Fi at home, uh, having to walk 25 miles to a place that had reliable Wi-Fi that they could then download the lessons for their A-level assignments for their school. Uh, that's uh, how the lengths to which some people, some students, uh, in uh, particularly the Global South, have to go to, uh, to get access to technology and the Internet. And that's been particularly challenging to uh, when schools went online during the pandemic. Uh, if you don't have that Internet access at home, uh, don't have easy access uh, at, a, at a restaurant nearby or whatever, there are uh, long journeys ahead if you wanted to just be able to download the materials for your classes. I mean, that's um, the state of the world that we live in is there's a, a good percentage of the global south that still do not have reliable Internet access. And that has an impact on their learning. Uh, and that has an impact on opportunity as well. Uh, so really, uh, kudos to Rajika for interviewing Rebecca and kind of bringing to light a lot of the, the challenges that students uh, in the Global South where Internet access is not as reliable um, have uh, with their educational um, pursuits. So in, in, large, in the large swaths of the southern part of this world, you're going to find that, uh, unfortunately. Uh, that, uh, but on a bigger picture scale, uh, we do see now that uh, of the world's population, and we refer regularly to uh, a, a service called We Are Social. Uh, it's a digital team uh, headquartered in many places in the world, but it started in the UK, but has operations uh, uh, and centers uh, globally that really track uh, the global state of digital, mobile, and social around the world and produce some fascinating quarterly reports and yearly reports that document just the, the, the impact of technology on, uh, on the wider world. And this most recent April edition uh, had some fascinating stats that I will we'll discuss today that we now have uh, 5 billion people in the world. Uh, that's out of almost just under 8 billion, uh, so about 63% of the total world's population now has access to the internet. So it's well over 60% now on its way to two-thirds, but again, still, as we talked about with the, earlier with the Global South, uh, there's uh, good, good numbers uh, of, of almost 3 billion people who don't have access to the internet still. That's changing, but slowly, but uh, we're, we'll get there. Uh, what is also fascinating about this, uh, there are more people who have 5.3 billion people uh, have access to a, um, or have mobile phones, and that's 67% of the world's population. So when you take into account most uh, preteens and younger might not have mobile phones yet, that's a good percentage of the available world population. Uh, the number of internet users, as we said, 5 billion out of that 7.93 billion people in the world, that's 63% of the world have an internet access. And just behind that, at 4.65 billion, uh, we have uh, that many active social media users monthly. Uh, so we have 58.7% of the world uh, are now able to, are active social media users. And we talk about why that matters uh, when it comes to 
one of the founding principles of everything I've done in uh, international student recruitment uh, recommendations and just connecting with audiences uh, since uh, mid-naughties when social media was just catching on is live where your audiences live. And yes, it's not going to be the same in every country. And yes, certain countries have their own social media. But the point is, that's where they're, playing, they're spending their time. Uh, you all get your weekly uh, reports. If you're on an iPhone, you know how many hours a week you spend looking at your screen or have attention on your screen. Uh, if you have an iPad as well, you'll get a double dose of that. But you, you, that data is readily capturable. And it's something that you regularly see. Uh, this is where on your work, in your waking hours, you're on a, on a screen one way or another, whether it's a desktop, laptop, tablet, phone, what have you, you're spending the greater majority of your waking hours. Uh, if you're in international education, you're certainly doing that unless you're meeting with students uh, in person all the time. Uh, you're certainly getting more than your fair share of screen time. And your future student audiences are also spending their time online. And that's what these the data really reflects. Uh, we are social people also have teamed with Hootsuite on a number of their uh, recent surveys. And they've documented just uh, for some of the countries with significant growth, uh, just in the last uh, year on year of change for social media, there are actually 7.5% more uh, people in the world on social media than there were last year, 7.5%. So that's 326 million more people have joined social media in the last year, as opposed to only 196 million uh, getting access to the internet. So you see some very fascinating data in here and uh, growth of internet users over time, uh, amount of use uh, that students, uh, that folks are having on social media and internet use, uh, where that's going. That's the average is almost seven hours um, a day uh, are, is the amount of time everybody spends on the internet uh, every day. So you, t you see that, that has uh, that has decreased a little bit in the last year, but you also see uh, one of the one of the one of the uh, the uh, unconnected populations, and we're talking about the global south again, uh, where the largest percentage of uh, population that are unconnected. You look at India; that's uh, 743 million people in India still do not have internet access, so that's 53% of the population. So the majority in India are still unable to connect. Uh, China still has a, a substantial chunk. They've got a billion online, billion internet users uh, right now, but 28% uh, of their country is still not. Uh, that's 400 million people. Pakistan, 63% of their population are not connected either. Uh, Bangladesh, 68% of their population are not connected. Nigeria, 49% of their population is not connected to the internet. Ethiopia, 75%. So you really see some dramatic numbers here. But uh, for those that are online, um, we, when we looked at those social media numbers, those 4.65 uh, billion people uh, that have our regular uh, social media users, that if you look at just the, it's even a, a more significant percentage when, when I talked about live where your audience lives uh, on social media, they're living there. Uh, when it looks at just age 13 and up, those are the real, that's kind of the minimum threshold for most uh, social media accounts. Uh, you have to be 13. Uh, that number uh, increases the percentage of the world population that uh, is on social media to 75% of the eligible age population is using social media right now. So um, having that presence on social media certainly makes 
uh, a significant uh, a difference. Uh, and uh, in terms of the social media audience, uh, in terms of the gender balance, uh, we're talking uh, a significant percent are uh, more heavily leaning women uh, to men. So women tend to use the internet more than men do. And that has an impact in who you're accessing uh, in, in using social media. So we have some, just some great data from the team at We Are Social. And as we do with each of these reports, we put the links to them. Uh, in the chat section, so some great links and that's already in there. So I do encourage you to check that out. Uh, some really uh, useful content there as you look to uh, drill down even to country level data. Uh, you're gonna find a lot of that uh, through the We Are Social report. So definitely a good resource to keep uh, bookmarked uh, and certainly follow the our newsletter. You subscribe to that, you're gonna get, uh, get that regularly in your inbox on Mondays or on your LinkedIn profile. So uh, we do, since we just launched that newsletter uh, in the last, uh, I think this is the third or fourth edition, and we just started at the beginning of April, and we've already, uh, uh, thankfully, been able to rank up uh, about 550 uh, subscribers through that. So thank you all who have taken the time to subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, that really helps uh, spread the word on what's going on uh, in international education and social media. So let's move to our second question of the day. And this is one that is a, a bit troubling uh, to, to talk about. Uh, it's one that uh, is a problem that uh, hasn't gone away and is probably a universal one to, uh, to, uh, to, see, uh, to see happening every, every so often. And that is uh, the issue of uh, can educational agents always be trusted? And there are always going to be bad actors, and if this is not unique to the uh, international education profession, certainly uh, every profession has their own standards now, accrediting bodies and um, certification bodies and that type of thing. And in this case, um, there's a story that comes out of India, Pi News, uh, uh, and a number of uh, Indian uh, outlets picked up on this story last week. And that was a story of arrests in India after fraud claims by the U.S. Embassy, uh, where uh, fraudulent documents were, or, were identified by uh, consular officers who were conducting visa interviews uh, of prospective international students. And the, those, uh, that the local authorities were made aware of these uh, fraudulent documents. And uh, then local authorities have in the Punjab and also in Hyderabad have arrested uh, several agents, uh, educational agents. And uh, for those that have been to India regularly, you know these two city, uh, the two regions uh, in the Punjab. A lot of uh, students from there will go to Canada, will go to, uh, to the U.S. and the U.K. as well. But we also have, we also have uh, students uh, in Hyderabad, and that is uh, the, a city in India that you, uh, every street corner, there are, at, there are offices for dozens of agents. Most of those are unaccredited agents or unrecognized agents. Uh, the story that we're talking about today uh, has um, a number of agents that are, are seven uh, police documents documenting uh, the agents who were arrested. Seven, diff seven different education agencies were paid thousands of rupees to provide the aspiring students with fake documents to support their U.S. student visa applications. So that's from uh, the Pi News article that the Agent B, uh, kind of an agent's agent monitoring um, 
kind of uh, uh, outlet uh, that these seven agents, uh, there's one, only one agency, uh, two people, um, I should say. Uh, one, the one agency that's listed here, uh, uh, Felanki Overseas Educational Advisors, uh, that uh, was, was one of the ones that was arrested. Uh, that uh, there is uh, an a association of Australian educational education representatives in India, a uh, body that uh, kind of has membership uh, agencies can be members of. I don't think it's necessarily um, uh, certificate certifying or uh, accreditation body at all. It's just a membership body, but that a that agency. Member, that membership organization has suspended the memberships of those seven uh, agencies until uh, police investigations are complete. And that they, they indicate that only two of the seven agencies that were, um, were arrested or had, had individuals arrested of from were members of that association, the Association of Australian Education Representatives in India. Uh, their are also ARC in the U.S., American International Recruitment Council, has a certification process, uh, and now they're going through a complaint process uh, th uh, with three of their agencies uh, that are certif ARC certified agencies. So there are some concerns um, amongst uh, U.S. colleges, I would think, uh, who are wondering if any of their ARC uh, certified agencies are included in this. Uh, and that will be something that uh, ARC will certainly uh, hopefully conduct a, a thorough and efficient and effective um, analysis of what's been going on against these uh, with these certified agencies that they've already uh, vouched for. Uh, and that will raise some red flags. And uh, unfortunately, it's a, it happens every so often, every three, four, five, six, seven years. It'll have, there'll be stories like this that will pop up. Uh, this is the f first time I'm I'm aware that the U.S. Embassy has gotten involved and uh, been kind of the instigator of uh, of uh, calling out uh, the agencies or the students and then then getting to their agencies that uh, they paid all the money to. Interesting that it's the agencies themselves who accepted the money from the parents to supply the documents uh, are the ones that are are being arrested. Uh, the, the individuals that are, are responsible for that, either the owners uh, or just the actual employees that uh, produce the fake documents. We're not sure who those people are or if what level in the companies that they work for are. But we know that uh, th two of the Australian uh, agents group in India, three of ARC's uh, certified agents in India, are uh, under the cosh here. They're in, under, under investigation and they're going through the relevant uh, complaint processes and reviews. And uh, that uh, ARC's process is uh, something that has to be done uh, on the ground and uh, uh, investigations will have to happen. Uh, and the, the Australian group has already said that uh, they will soon be training its members on ways to verify the documents. Um, and I don't know if that necessarily answers this question because the, the agents were the ones that produced the fraudulent documents in the first place. Uh, that is uh, the real question on uh, how these get how these how these uh, uh, situations get resolved. And I'm sure Pharisees made clear that uh, 
their process is confidential until the fi their findings are released. And certainly, ARC member institutions uh, certainly want to be uh, made aware of what those decisions are as soon as possible because of the impact it could have on their students uh, if they're associated with an agency that has now been convicted or found guilty of or to have violated ARC certifications. Uh, there's going to be contracts that are voided uh, at many institutions from whom uh, the agencies, the, the, these particular three agencies, if it turns out to be that they are guilty. Uh, so it's, uh, it's very sad that this is happening, but it does happen every so often. And it, it, it highlights, I think, more than anything else, just how vigilant we all need to be uh, with regard to uh, the agency selection process. There is no silver bullet uh, that's going to guarantee you, okay, everybody you're dealing with is above board and uh, beyond reproach. Uh, it's going to have a lot to do with how well you manage those relationships and how it highlights the need of kind of not watchdog bodies, but certainly certification bodies, uh, the role that they have to play now in uh, making sure that uh, the truth comes to light in what these agencies' conduct has been. Uh, the fees for getting certified by ARC are not cheap, uh, tend to be $10,000 or more uh, to, for the site visits that need to happen and the review process that needs to take place. So there's a lot that goes on with ARC certification and uh, these are folks that, uh, the ones that are caught uh, uh, can, uh, unfortunately, uh, they can pay the money to get certified and uh, cook the books or whatever it takes before they to get that certification. But then if, it, if they are bad actors, they're going to get found out eventually. And uh, that's the process. And it's always been the concern on, on how well individual institutions can and uh, can monitor that when they don't have physical presence in those countries. They might make the rare trip and certainly the red carpet would get rolled out for them because they don't want, the agents certainly don't want to uh, not impress uh, their clients. Uh, so we see a lot of, um, of potential for, uh, for uh, that certainly gives ammunition to those that um, have always thought that agents are the, are the devil and uh, the worst thing uh, going. But uh, the reality is they are an important way that uh, universities in many countries, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, have uh, recruited students for years. Uh, we've, we're a little late to the party in the United States, a lot late to the party, uh, 20 years late probably, but we're, we're many U.S. institutions, over half, are now actively working with agents. So you, you're going to see these growing pains will happen, these, um, these unfortunate incidents happen. But hey, this happened, you, you look at Varsity Blues and the, the scandals that rocked uh, highly selective institutions in the United States, and uh, there were... Uh, People lost their jobs, people went to jail, people have been convicted of those crimes, and uh, hopefully if these uh, agents are found guilty of that in, the, in, the, in, their, in India, that, and anywhere in the world it happens, that they're held accountable as well. Uh, it's just, a, it, it is an unfortunate reality of life, um, so can always, agents always be trusted? I think the um, phrase that uh, Ronald Reagan used during the Cold War is trust but verify. And a part of that is, uh, yeah, you can trust, but you need to, you don't leave yourself un unprotected. Uh, you got to have pl a process in place to uh, make sure that, um, that uh, who you're dealing with is who they are, who they say they are, and they're uh, 
that are trustworthy and uh, do things the right way. So this is, uh, it's, there's no universals on this one, unfortunately. Uh, but and I, you could say the same thing for any, any profession, uh, really, that uh, lawyers, uh, cert certified public accountants, uh, bankers, whoever, insurance salesmen, whoever you want to say, uh, there are always going to be questions in no matter what industry you're in. Uh, for clergy, you're going to find, uh, obviously, incidents where they, they're not always trustworthy either. either. But certainly it just reinforces the point that anyone that you are dealing with, uh, they have to minimally have some, there have to be some standards that you're applying uh, to them. Uh, references certainly when you're going and uh, checking out, working with a new agent, who have they worked with? Have they, are those uh, universities that they've worked with been satisfied with those? So it's unlikely that any of the folks who are uh, uh, that are new to uh, that are uh, have been doing a, uh, the agency thing for a while in the U.S. are going to be uh, certainly uh, affected by this, but uh, let's let's hope that they aren't. But uh, those a the agencies that are confirmed bad actors are the ones that uh, will certainly pay the biggest price here, and uh, contracts will be canceled uh, whenever those uh, names of any. Uh, Agencies that will lose accreditation with um, ARC uh, in the U.S. at least the U, uh, U.S. institutions will will fit quickly uh, fish uh, cut cut bait with those folks as well. So there's uh, very interesting uh, debates on what's going on uh, with the release of these uh, re release of these agencies' names until investigations are complete and what that process looks like. How long that takes, I don't know. We'll certainly find out and keep you posted when we have more information on that. So let's move quickly into our final question of the day. Are international students used as political pawns? And again, uh, it would be nice in an ideal world to say no, they would never be used as pawns. But the reality uh, of, of life uh, and politics and um, certainly wars uh, do not make us immune from this this sad fact that uh, international students are being used as political pawns. And there's a couple of examples that I'll be sharing with you here. Uh, news story first from Times Higher Ed, uh, when we were dealing with a very real situation of uh, Russian students in the United States and whether or not uh, they uh, should be uh, kicked out. Uh, there was a, a, a U.S. politician, uh, Eric Swalwell, that had indicated uh, that all Russian students should be have their visas revoked and sent home. Uh, that uh, fortunately did not happen, uh, but we the article I'm referring to in Times Higher Ed is uh, written by a colleague, uh, former travel travel mate of uh, mine in India, Anna Wise, uh, now at uh, Hamilton uh, Hamilton uh, College, uh, where she's the associate dean of admissions and director of international recruitment. And I was um, had had been very involved in study uh, the foundation of study Mich study Maryland. Uh, and uh, was very active in getting uh, USA a study destination uh, and a larger consortium off the ground. Uh, and now uh, at Hamilton, she has uh, just written this op-ed for Times Higher Ed, uh, basically making the point that uh, we can't, uh, cannot uh, treat Russian students who are here uh, in the United States and uh, regardless of what their positions are, we can't universally uh, paint them with the same brush we paint uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, so individual students are 
here is trading in the U.S., they're probably worried for their um, of their safety a little bit because about how they feel about the word. They're probably not ones who are going to be the be the um, allies of Putin in any respect. Uh, they came to the West for a reason. Uh, and that uh, Russian and Belarusian students that are in the United States that uh, are worried that uh, that they, they might be uh, not granted admissions. And certainly for prospective students, we had a couple news stories about that. Uh, a little while ago on the on our newsletter, uh, because they are frankly uh, in a tough spot. Russian students are because they don't really have access uh, to uh, to visas in the in their country. Um, and this is before the war started. That uh, Russian students had to leave, uh, had to go to uh, Armenia, uh, Romania, and I think Kazakhstan were the three countries where they could go for visa, U.S. visa appointments because the U.S. Embassy has, has uh, cut all non-immigrant uh, visa services in their embassies and consulates in Russia before the war started, several months before. Uh, so now they're already in a tough spot trying to uh, get a visa, but uh, it's only by getting to those countries, uh, which is, has made particularly uh, uh, troublesome these days, and who knows when that when the war might be done in the Ukraine, but uh, not anytime soon it looks like. But certainly uh, their their travel to other countries has been is limited. Uh, certainly not to uh, Romania right now. There are no flights going anywhere into Europe, and certainly our, uh, Armenia maybe um, maybe to Kazakhstan they can get there through land crossings, but certainly it's chances are Russian students are not going to be able to get visas anyway unless they're already living in other countries and not coming direct from Russia. I think the same would go for Belarusian students, but they can oftentimes get to Lithuania uh, for visa appointments in Vilnius, but uh, there there may be some challenges there ahead too. But in terms of um, are they being used as political pawns? We don't. We shouldn't be using uh, them that way. Uh, what you have seen in another country, and this is coming out of India and China, uh, two stories that basically uh, are basically demonstrate the tit for tat that's going on between uh, India and China right now. Uh, for those that have been paying attention to uh, certainly our newsletter, has been keeping you abreast of. Uh, all the apps that are getting banned in India that are from China. I think there's over 50 different apps, Chinese apps, maybe 200 apps. I'm uh, last time I checked, uh, but uh, dozens of apps are from that are, are Chinese owned are not allowed in uh, in India. And we've uh, we've highlighted the story in the last couple of weeks of Indian students not getting. Uh, back into China, if because China hosts a number of Indian students uh, for university study. They haven't been able to get back into India, uh, fr from India back into China to continue their studies. China's basically kept almost all international students out, unless you're at uh, one of the prestigious NYU Shanghai, uh, Duke Kunshan, or one of the other uh, British uh, high flyers that have campuses there. Uh, but the, China is now starting to warm to letting certain groups of students. There's a, a story we just saw uh, that some Sri Lankan students have been approved for a return to China. But uh, these in, there's a group of Indian students that have not been able to return and that uh, you, you're seeing uh, Indian students that want trying to get back into uh, China 
having to start a Twitter campaign. And this is kind of the irony of the whole uh, tit for tat politically with China, with India, between India and China. They're having to start a Twitter t campaign to, uh, to convince China to let them back in uh, to study, to finish their studies, uh, because they can't get on WeChat, because WeChat's one of the Chinese social media platforms that's banned inside the country. So you also see another one, another story here in the back and forth. There are, and this story gives a number, 20,000 Indians enrolled at Chinese universities that uh, have been blocked from returning uh, to the country. Uh, that you now see India uh, suspending Chinese tourist visas after Beijing had barred its students from returning. So that's another news story. I just saw that uh, yesterday. Uh, dropped that into uh, the news, uh, to, to, the, um, to the chat today, because I think it's one that's very important that we all are aware of in our, in our day to day. It's, it's going on. It could have uh, rollover effects with other countries. So that's all we have for you on the Midweek Roundup this week. We're grateful that you've been able to join us for the live conversation today. And if not, thanks for uh, listening on repeat uh, on, our, on our major channels. And those of you who are sub subscribing to our podcast, audio-only podcast, appreciate you uh, making us a part of your weekly listening habits. So thanks very much for your time today, and we look forward to chatting with you again soon. Cheers.